I want to read to you from John uh, chapter 21. Before I do that, I just want to mention, we, we, we've, we've been in this, in this study on the book of John. It's been a long time. We're in the last chapter. Yes, Bob's almost done. I just find another one, okay? It's not like it ends, all right? So we're in the, we're in the last chapter. And, and one of the things we've been talking about through the course of the book of John is dealing with hard things, dealing with things you know, there's certain things when you read commentaries or you listen to other people's sermons, there's a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, there's passages people just shoot, skip by because it's awkward, it's hard, it's difficult to understand. And, and I don't want to ever, ever do that. And sometimes, you know, like last week, we talked about this. Last week, we talked about the resurrection. And I just said right up front, let's, let's admit it. The resurrection's hard. This is hard. This is a hard truth. It's an awesome truth. It's a great truth. And I believe it's truth. But it's a hard truth. And we talked about some issues involved there and, and dealing with that kind of thing. Today, we're in John chapter 21. And what gets me about John chapter 21, and this is, you know, sometimes people don't like to admit it, but I'm like, why is it there? Why did John write? I mean, we just did the resurrection. It's like, wow. This is awesome. And now, breakfast on the beach. What? What? And, and it can be, this can be one of those passages where you go, I'm not exactly sure what this is telling me. I'm not exactly sure why this is there. But there's a reason, and we're going to get into that. Let me read you the passage in uh, John 21, 1 through 14. You can follow along in your Bibles, uh, on your phones if you have them, or you can just listen. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Some of yours will say the Sea of Tiberias. Literally, it's the Sea of Tiberias. It's the same sea, just a Greek name and a Hebrew name. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to, him, said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So here we are. Jesus appears again. And it's interesting to me how this starts because there's, there's, there's some certain clues here that are telling us that John is going to say, this is important. And we're going to try to figure out why. He says, it says, after, afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. That it happened this way is an interesting statement. It's kind of like saying, here is the deal. It's saying, listen, because this is important. It's saying, I'm writing to you exactly 
what happened. What is this? John knows. John knows what people are going to say about what he's written down. John knows there's going to be people who say, oh, this stuff is just, the, it's just legends. He's saying, this is an accurate statement. I'm giving to you exactly what happened. All right? And then he starts to get into it. And so I want you to see, we're going to see three things here. When we talk about what Jesus has done, talk about what Jesus has done with these disciples, what has happened to them, and what also happens to us. First thing I want you to see, they and we are in a new community. There's there's, uh, something interesting going on here. There are three things John wants them to learn. This is the number one thing I believe. And they're simple things, but they have depth for us. I want you to think for a moment. We talk about this all the time. Think about what it was like back then. The disciples. Think about the disciples, the different kinds of people they were. We've studied this in this book. It's come out a lot in John. It comes out a lot in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that these are different people. Very different in some situations. All kinds, different temperaments, different outlooks on life. They argued with each other about sometimes very petty things, just like we do. They're not a wonderful group all the time, just getting along. I've been, you know, some of you have been watching the the series The Chosen, and they do a good job of bringing that out. They're not always, it's not always, I mean, it's it's not always super follows exactly how it goes, but it's, it's a good imagining of how they, would have, how they would have been. And in these last two chapters, we see some of this. We see Mary, last chapter, we, we, when we talked about that, she struggled at the tomb. She couldn't figure out what had happened. She thought the body may, must have been stolen. There was nothing else. Resurrection didn't occur to her. And then when Jesus appeared to Mary, you remember that? Jesus appeared to Mary. What convinced her? What convinced her that it was Jesus? His presence, no. His wounds, no. Remember what he did? He just said, Mary. Mary. He said her name, and she melted. Somehow, the way he spoke her name, maybe because no one had ever spoke her name the way Jesus did. A lot of people had said things to her, but not like he did. And so she seems, seemed to have felt it. Mary's a feeler. She's intuitive. When he said her name, she melted. This is him. She grabbed him. John and Peter at the tomb, remember them? They were furiously thinking through the options. They were trying to work through what could have happened. The Greek word there is very, very specific. The Greek word means to consider options over and over and to eliminate and think of things and try to look at it from all different angles to try to understand. They walked into an empty tomb. They could not figure out what was going on. Trying to make sense out of something that makes no sense. They they believed in a sense. John tells us they believed and yet they didn't believe. What is he trying to say? He said something has happened here. Something incredible has happened here. But they hadn't quite connected it to the fact that it was the resurrection that Jesus had been talking about because that was something that was so foreign to them. And so they struggled with it. They were looking for a rational explanation. They were being very rational. Mary was intuitive. These guys are rational. And then Thomas, remember Thomas? Unless I touch, I have to touch 
or I will not believe. What is he saying there? He's saying, even if Jesus stands in front of me, if I don't touch those wounds, I'm not believing. Now, we know what happened. Jesus stood in front of him, and that changed everything. But what did Thomas want? He wanted a sensory experience. I got to feel it with my hands. I got to touch it. And I want you to see that throughout the Gospels, we see the disciples were uniquely different people, just like people are today. And most of them would not have hung out with each other except for one thing. Something has happened to them. Something has become a bond between them and is Jesus. They've seen the risen Christ. And now John tells us they're together. They're together. They are united. They have naturally become brothers and sisters. They have naturally become brothers and sisters. This is an incredible thing. Because human beings usually like to divide. It's natural. It's what we do. People we disagree with, people we don't like, they become the others. They become those people. The ones we don't like, the ones we look down upon, the ones we mock, the ones we make fun of. And it's based on so many different things. It can be based on religion. It can be based on politics. It can be based on culture. It can be based on race and many other things. And all around us in our culture, what do we see? You go online, you hear the, what do you see? Animosity, hate, mockery, dismissiveness. It shows up clearly. This is what dominates us. This is what we naturally do. We push people into cliques, into groups, who are mine and who are not. They are the others. And guess what? The church is full of others. To someone else, you are the other. And so we see how this kind of just grows, and we can bring it into the church. It's an awful thing. The people you would not normally care about now. The people you would not normally hang with now. The people you would not normally give... Two cents, you don't care about them. You don't, they're, they're nothing. They're now your brothers and sisters because of Jesus. This changes everything. This has to change everything. It's a new community. That's what's going on here. And so we see these people, you know, Jesus, he comes to them. He meets them at their point of need with Mary. He meets her and he knows exactly what she needs. He knows exactly what she needs to hear. I just need to speak her name, and she will know. With Thomas, he knows exactly, you know, and and we talked about this last week, but it was interesting. Thomas told the disciples, unless I touch, Jesus shows up and says, okay, you can touch now. And Thomas is floored because how does Jesus know? How does Jesus know what he said to those guys? I wonder if his first thought was, Peter, you tell? Right, And, and, and... And think about this. This is something, I mean, I, in studying this, I've never seen this before. How Jesus, it's just amazing to me. Jesus was willing to go, stick your hand in. You can stick your hand in my side. He can humble and humiliate himself for the sake of Thomas. 
for the sake of the guy who said, unless I touch, everybody else is believing, you're all crazy. I gotta see, I gotta feel it. And Jesus says, okay, you can feel it. He meets people at their point of need with all these different temperaments, with all these different strengths, with all these different weaknesses. All these people find life in Jesus. And we see Jesus. And, you know, we see Jesus and we see sides of Jesus that we would never know on our own. We would never know them on our own. And so we look at what Thomas is, Jesus is willing to do with Thomas. We look how loving Jesus treats Mary. We learn from that. We learn sides from that. Think about it. I, if Thomas hadn't said that and Jesus hadn't done that, I never would have thought about it. The, 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 the servanthood, the humility that's involved in saying, okay, stick your hand in my side. It never would have occurred to me, but for Thomas. So I'm thankful Thomas did that and said that because it shows a side of Jesus that I would not have known. Do you understand that as people who are followers of Jesus Christ, every one of us, we bring something to the table. We bring something to this auditorium that other people need to see and need to hear. Other people who, who, as they get to know you, will see a side of Jesus that they would have never seen before except for you. Even, even in the past month, meeting with different people, talking with different people, learning different people's experiences and struggles and victories. What, have, what has happened? I have learned about Jesus. And I have seen examples of his love that I didn't know before and of his compassion that I didn't know before. This is why it is so important for us to be in community, to gather together, to meet each other in other places in community. Is because we learn more about Jesus from each other. You don't come here. Let me tell you something. It's, it's not like we want people to come to this church because we need you, right? We're, this, is a, I mean, this is a church that we place very little emphasis on money. I don't know if you've been around, but a lot of churches talk about money a lot. We don't talk about money a lot. And it's just... That's what, I mean, this church, we used to take an offering, and every once in a while, I would forget about the offering and close the service. What kind of church has a pastor that forgets to take up an offering? A poor church. That's, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's what I should say. But, I mean, the point is, the point is why? Because, because we're, we're, what's important here? All right. I'll be honest. I am paid through your offerings, right? But I want to tell you with all my heart, from the depth of my heart, that's not what's important. What's important is you and me and us here together, worshiping together, corporately singing you. I tell you, sitting here sometimes, hearing you sing washes over me. And I can, the other day, a couple Sundays ago, I started crying. I was like, God, this is what heaven's going to be like. This is so awesome. We need each other. It's not that just that we need you, but we do, but also you need us. We need each other. That's how we learn more about Jesus together in community. We see 
We see it all the way from the very beginning, how Jesus treated Thomas so lovingly, so humbly, willing to really, you think about it, embarrass himself for Thomas's sake. How Jesus sees Mary and she's not getting it. And he could have said, it's me, you dope. I'm resurrected. What's wrong with you? No, he doesn't do that. He says, Mary. And it's like saying, Mary, I love you. I'm here. And she melted. She broke, right? And it's true in the church today. We need each other more than we realize. Knowing other people shows us more about Jesus. Don't think that what you're supposed to do is just come here to worship and learn. That's a great thing, but that's not all of it. We need each other. So what Jesus has done for the disciples and he also wants to do to us, do with us, first of all, they're in a new community. Second of all, I want you to see they, we, are a new creation. So now let's look for a minute. I want to, I want to highlight for a minute Peter. There's been an incredible change in his life. He's, Jesus has already met with him twice before. Right, So I think in some ways there's been some resolution, but uh, still, Peter, he's, got, he's carrying a load, and we're going to get into that next week. But also, Peter's a changed man. Because when you read this, <clears throat> if it sounds a little familiar, it's because there's a similar event earlier in his life, towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is shown to us in Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to read it. It's up here on the screen too. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus, he said to Simon, Simon Peter, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, teacher, and it really means teacher, teacher, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. What is going on here? First of all, let me show you the similarities that grab us. They're, you know, they're simple things. They're in a boat, right? That's what, they're fishing. That's another one. They fish all night. That's in both, both of these. They catch nothing. Another similarity. They try one more time. Another similarity. And they have an enormous catch. It's like six or seven similarities between these passages. But there's a huge difference. And the huge difference is Peter's reaction. Peter comes, he sees what's going on that first time, and he says, I'm in the presence of something great. I'm a sinful man. You should get away from me, or I should get away from you because I'm sinful, and I'm very aware of that right now. I'm not worthy. But notice in this one, what happens in this one? You remember? He runs to him. He jumps in the water. Now, that, it can be very shallow for a long ways. And so he may have just, you know, it just may have been up to his waist or his chest. But he, he, that's his first thought. I'm out. I'm gone. I'm going. It's Jesus. He runs to him. The exact opposite reaction in two stories that are incredibly similar. It's almost like Jesus is going, hey, Peter, it's a do-over. It's a do-over. You get another shot at this one. And there's a key truth here. Meeting Jesus is never simple or easy. It is life-changing. It is life-changing. When Jesus manifests himself to someone, 
people don't say. Like they didn't say there, wow, cool, lots of fish. How did you do that? No, what did Peter do? I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. Or second time, he ran to him. There's either fear and anger or there's love. There's no middle ground in this Christian thing that we talk about. All four gospels teach us this, that Jesus is the creator God who came to earth and gave himself for us so that we could live for him. It's a totalitarian claim. There's no wiggle room here. You can either run from him and hate him, or you can run to him with joy and love and tears and fall at his feet and say, I'm yours. Those are the options. Those are the options. Moderation is not an option because nothing else makes sense. If you're in the middle, if you're just coasting, you're missing it. You're not seeing the full picture. If you see him for who he is, you'll either run away or you'll run to him. And Peter here is running to him because he has a new identity. He has a new, you know, our big, we talk about all the time, self-image. So our culture is all about that. The main way people do self-image in our culture is through self-achievement. We, we try to live a certain way and convince ourselves that uh, I'm a good person. I'm a fairly good person. I'm not a bad person. That's how we do that. You know, it's interesting that a while back, <clears throat> I read this book, it's quite a while ago, I think they made a documentary out of it. It was about a, a guy who was a hitman with the mafia. And he killed a lot of people. He claimed that he killed 100 people. But they, they pinned about 20-something on him. And so he went to prison for life. And he said in a jail interview, he said this, I never killed children. I never killed women. I only killed people that deserved to be killed. I love my wife. I love my kids. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. See, we all, we all find ways of figuring out why we think we're a good person. And we all are not good judges of whether or not we're a good person. That's a, that's a perfect example of it. We achieve self-worth by trying different things. Maybe it's good works or good morals or religious activities. We use comparison all the time, right? We say, I'm not as bad as when I first heard about Jesus. My brother was telling me about Jesus and he, thou shalt not murder. I said, I'm not, as, I'm not a murderer. <laughs> I'm good on that one. I'm not a murderer. Don't get to some of those lying things and those other things. I don't want to talk about those, but I'm not as bad as they are. Comparison. But there are often times in our lives when we try to live that way, where we get in a situation where we feel helpless. We see that we're flawed. Our self-image is threatened and maybe even destroyed, and we have nothing to stand on. And in those situations, you can either run away from Jesus in anger, or you can run to him. Because Jesus is not just an example. He's a savior. He's our savior. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. When we believe in him and accept him, we are accepted and loved unconditionally. So we have an identity that we now have received, not achieved. Very careful there. It's not a fragile thing. It's a foundation that you can stand on when things are tough, when things are, are, are going the wrong way in your eyes. Achieved identity based on the idea Achieved identity is based, I forgot it is there, is based on the idea that you're a good person. Gospel identity says you're saved by grace because you're not a good person. 
The gospel is an equal opportunity offender. It offends all of us. That's why we say everybody's welcome, and then we say nobody's perfect, because we're all equal at the foot of the cross. But we always finish with anything is possible. When God is involved, anything is possible. So when you come to a difficult situation and you're standing on the wrong foundation, oftentimes what happens is it shows you how flawed you are and how weaker, weaker you are, weak you are, weaker than you thought. And so you react. Everybody does this. You run. Everybody does this. I do this, right? You get angry. You ever notice that when someone points out one of your flaws, your first reaction is to get angry and to push back and to be annoyed, even if they're right? Achieved identity is what's in play there. Or am I the only one to struggle with this? You guys are looking at me like I'm such a, right? <laughs> I feel like we're in that movie, Princess Bride, yeah? And Miracle Max is talking to him, and out comes his wife, and she goes, liar, liar, okay? When someone tells you something that's wrong with you and points out your flaws, you tend to react, that's your first reaction. And if that's not your first reaction, liar, you are lying, okay? I'm just not gonna, not gonna put up with that. But with a received identity in Christ, what happens when, when, when we begin to understand I'm saved by grace, when we begin to understand that God, through his incredible love for me, has given me this identity that is a foundation that I can stand on. And somebody comes, and this happens to me sometimes too. I'm willing to admit my flaws, but every once in a while I get it right. And somebody comes and says, Bob, you know what? You said something that was hurtful to people. You said something that was just flippant, and that's where I always get myself in trouble, right? My wife always tells me that. When you leave the message and get into your goofiness, you can easily hurt people. You need to be careful about that, and I understand that. And somebody came to me and said, you hurt me, and I think you hurt other people. And I said, thank you. I need to know that. I am flawed. I am flawed. And you have just confirmed it to me. And what does that do? It makes me rely on the grace of God even more because I'm very aware of my flaws. I'm very aware of my weaknesses. I'm very aware of my shortcomings. And only, only through the grace of Jesus Christ can I live and have an identity and be strong and, and, and function in a healthy way. That's the only way I can do it. And I thank God that his grace covers those flaws. I thank people when they point them out and I thank God that he covers them. Sometimes I'll tell them too, I hope you don't think I'm going to beat myself up over this because this is not news to me, right? Luckily, you haven't found out some of the worst stuff. So there we go. So Peter, he has this new identity, and it's shown in these two passages. Suddenly he's running to Jesus rather than being afraid, angry, or wanting to get away. He doesn't understand everything yet. I mean, obviously, Peter doesn't understand all, everything that's going on at this point, but he has a sense he is saved by grace. And that's all it took to respond differently to Jesus this time, to get this do-over right. This man loves me and died for me. I want to run to him. This man has died, and now he loves me. It's interesting. My, uh, I typed that into my computer when I was doing studying and kind of something, and my computer flagged that as, uh, told me, you can't say someone loves you in the present tense and then say they died. 
because they can't love you if they've died. I have an unsaved computer is what the problem is. My computer, my computer is not a Christian, <laughs> so it doesn't get that. But that's the beauty of Jesus. <laughs> he breaks all the rules. He has died, and he lives again, and he loves me. You know, it's interesting, too, to me, that Jesus also made them breakfast, and they ate together. Now, this is something that John writes that we can just slip right by. But to Jews who are steeped in the Old Testament, this is a pretty strong, uh, this is, this is a, a strong reminder, let me say that. Thinking about this loving, serving thing that Jesus... And, and one is simply this. It's just because meals are huge in that culture. This is the obvious one. Much, meals mean a lot in our culture. But in that culture, meals were huge. Me, meals meant acceptance. Meals meant commitment. I'm committed to you. And Jesus is saying everything's now changed, you know, but yet nothing has changed. I love you. I'm committed to you. I accept you still. And a meal is an intimate confirmation of that. But I'm going to look a little bit more in this, in this third point. Okay, so they and we, we're in a new community. They and we, we're a new creation. They and we, we are now, we now have this new confidence. We have this new confidence. We have this confidence that this is true. Jesus was raised from the dead, that he loves me, that he died for me, and he loves me. And, and, and one of the confirmations comes in this passage. They had to be, um, you know, the disciples had to be really certain of this, Jesus is, is coming to them multiple times because they're all going to die for their faith. John's the only one who lived to an old age. John is the only one that we know of for sure died naturally, as, as natural as can be if you die in a prison, right? The others gave their lives for this. And John now is the last one. He's probably the only one alive at the point this is written. And he's writing and he's remembering. And man, he's probably weeping and so they were willing to die for this. But how about us? How do we get that kind of assurance, that kind of confidence? Well, one way is from these accounts. These are presentations of evidence that happened. Now, this is a popular thing now. I want to go into this, and it's kind of, eh, but I do want to go into it. It's a popular thing nowadays for people who don't agree with the Bible to say it's like realistic fiction. That's basically what they say. Uh, they say it in different ways, but they're saying it's like realistic fi fiction. It's like um, Ernest Hemingway wrote Farewell to Arms. What did he do? He wrote about a historical, uh, he laid the background of a historical event, and then he put fictional characters into it and a fictional story into it. So it's fiction that has a very historical feeling, right? And people will say, well, that's what the Bible is. There's other ones like that. Any of the James Mitchell books are historical fiction. Um, there's, there's lots of others. But here's the problem. You know, the problem with saying this is historical fiction. It's, it's, uh, it's details uh, written into uh, a historical time, but the details are fiction. The problem with this is historical fiction wasn't invented until the 1830s. And really in the 1850s did it really take off. There are no, I mean, you, you look that up anyway. You can go, you know, something that you really trust like Wikipedia or you just go, <laughs> yeah, that was a joke, right? Um, you can go and, and, and they will tell you, this is when historical fiction starts, mid 18. Some go back into, into the late 1700s with a few examples, but it really got going in the 1800s, historical fiction. And so people are saying, no, no, we got these four guys that wrote four books 
in four different places, all disconnected from each other, and they all came out with the same historical fiction. They were just so far ahead of their time, nobody knew it. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It's unbelievable. Right? When scholars look at the four, four Gospels, and, and, and the interesting thing is lots of scholars look at the four Gospels, they compare them with the religious stories that were written in that time. And they're totally different. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Peter, Simon Peter heard this, heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Now, why talk about him wrapping his arm? He, he had his, his big, his heavier cloak, and he took it off, right? Because he's fishing, he's working, he's pulling ropes. He's strong. He wants the freedom of arm movement. So he's got it laying in the boat. They say, it's Jesus. He says, it's Jesus. And he just wraps like that, like, like you know, some kind of yuppie wrapping his sweater around his, his, so the sweater hangs down. And he jumps in the water, and off he goes. Now, why did he tell us that? Why did John tell us that? an intimate detail that only an eyewitness would know or remember. English majors here. If you're an English major, you're even familiar with that. This is how they would say, what is the narrative purpose, right? How does that little tidbit of information move the narrative along? How is this helpful? We don't need to know it. But an eyewitness who saw it, like I imagine John, he's sitting there writing, he was saying, there was Jesus on the shore. He told him, and Peter, oh, Peter, he always does this kind of stuff. He wraps his cloak around his waist and jumps into the water. What a dope, you know? He's remembering it, why? Because he saw it. And he puts it in because that's what he saw. It doesn't help the narrative purpose. But it does help confirm to us, this is a historical account. Look at the next verse. The other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. Why do we need to know it's 100 yards? There's no narrative purpose here. See, this is what takes it out of, of, of just religious writing, just fiction, and puts it into historical writing. And there was no historical fiction. That's, they, that was unheard of. They didn't know what that was. And then in verse 11, This is where people really get going. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Why do we need to know the exact number of fish? How does that help? 153. Someone took the time to count them. Why why didn't the net break? I don't know. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. And, you know, that's why many scholars will admit this is not legend. This is not legend. This is not written that way. They don't necessarily believe in God or in Jesus, but they will, they will admit this is not legend. Now, some will still say it's legend, and, and those are the ones the media loves to quote. You know, you get them around Easter and different times like that. They love to say that, but they, they are definitely a minority. And if you say it's not legend, then you have to treat it as if it's a religious writing of that day. And religious writings of that day, nothing, nothing was just thrown in for whatever. And so you've got to account for the fact that John wrote 153. And they try. They, oh, they wrapped themselves in knots. I read one guy, and what he said was, I think what happened was, at the time John wrote, there were 153 churches 
in existence at that time. I think that's what happened. And so it sounded like, like, like a prophecy. And everyone would get excited. But do you see how ludicrous that is? By now, by the time John writes, the church has spread all over the known world. It is going like wildfire. Who's counting them? Who has the ability to count them? There's no, you can't Google it. And so they get themselves into these things where they got to say, well, 153, I think maybe that was how many people Jesus healed. Who comes up with that? Because you're just, what you're doing is guessing to try to help your argument. It's much more simple to say a fisherman would remember how many fish were caught in a record catch. And a fisherman in those days would know that at about 150 large fish, nets break. And he's like, it was 153, and the net didn't break. Cool. But we look at it and go, oh, 153, hmm, right? They have to twist themselves in knots to give explanations because it never is like this, right? It's never, uh, you read religious, leader, religious literature, you read about Hercules. You never get stuff like this. Hercules walked out of the house in the middle of the day. The sun was hot. He was sweating like crazy, right? Three puppies played in the yard. The grass was green because it had rained lately and it felt cool on his feet. And then he went home. You don't get that. Read it. You can read about Hercules. You don't get those kind of things where details that mean nothing to the story are thrown in all over the place. All the stories have to flow and make perfect sense. That is what separates the four Gospels from religious uh, writings of that day because it's a historical document. It's written shortly after Jesus' death, and it really happened. They saw it. They testified to it. They wrote it down, and they died for their faith. You know, they died for what they believed in. A lot of people will die for what they believe in, but not many will die for something that they know they made up. Especially lots of people died. And this doesn't prove the Bible's true, but it is strong testimony that has to be dealt with. It helps us as we mentally work through these things. As we talk about last week, like we talked about last week, the resurrection's hard. It helps us work through things that are hard for our mind to wrap around. But also there's one other thing that is a statement by Jesus in this passage. And we'll wrap with this. It says, when they landed, they saw a fire burning, uh, burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, even with so many nets. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. And this is how the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus does something. He prepares a meal. This is that thing I said that any Jew who is steeped in the Old Testament would immediately connect. He connected with 1 Kings 19. Excuse me, 1 Kings 19, the prophet Isaiah has just come from this incredible victory, this super high, and then the queen says, I'm going to kill you for that. And he just crashes into depression. He runs away. He runs into the woods. And, and have you ever had that sometime? You, you have something that's really great, and then not long after that, 
boosh, there's a drop. When we used to go to Arizona, I used to take uh, teens and people to Arizona. We would go for 11 days, and it would just be this incredible time of ministry and God and seeing God work, and it was so awesome. And then I would come home, and I would come home to a normal home and, and, and kids who, who, who fought sometimes and caused problems and to, to a normal church where there was issues and all this kind of stuff. And usually in a, a second or third day after, I'd be like, oh, oh, why me? Why is this so horrible? I immediately had gotten totally past this incredible trip, and now I was just wallowing in the muck of this terrible, not even that bad, but just felt terrible stuff. This has happened to Elijah. He's come off this great victory. Now his life is in danger. He's like, oh no, God can bring rain to the whole nation of Israel, but he can't save my life. And so he runs into the woods, and he says, he prays that he would die. He says, I've had enough. That's it. And then he literally says, Lord, take my life. Just kill me. Just kill me. And what happens? He falls asleep. And the angel of the Lord wakes him up. This angel. But, but Scripture tells us specifically. It says angel, then it tells us again, it's the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord shakes him. Hey, wake up. I made you breakfast. And the angel has made him breakfast. And the angel just says, eat you're weak, you need strength, eat. So he eats. And then he goes back to sleep. And a while later, the angel of the Lord wakes him up again. Hey, hey, I made lunch. You need this for what's up ahead. Eat. Okay, what does this do? This reinforces everything my mother and my grandmother ever said to me. Right? When I was a little kid, we'd go to my grandmother's house. She thought the cure for everything was food. Right? So you say, Bobby, eat more. I say, no, this is so good, but I'm getting full. One more serving, one more serving. It'll do you good, right? That confirms everything, right? That confirms everything they ever taught me. Yes, one more helping. So what happens? The angel of the Lord comes to him. Who is this angel of the Lord? This special, it's a special title. In, 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 when Moses, it's burning bush, it says the angel speaks to him out of the burning bush. Then a little later it says the Lord is speaking to him out of the burning bush. Who is this angel? Who is this angel that is divine in some way, that speaks for God and yet also speaks as if he is God? This angel that is willing to cook a meal a little bit below his station, don't you think? And the angel of the Lord, and this is what most of the, I mean, I haven't met any that don't, is Jesus. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. And so we have him here in this situation, showing up and cooking. Showing up. Instead of in glory and brightness and saying, guys, it's me again. Awesome. Yes, you can worship. You know, he doesn't. He says, hey, fellas, I made breakfast. I made breakfast. Who is this angel of the Lord that makes breakfast for people? Who serves people? Who is humble enough to do that? And it's Jesus. Jesus who said, who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Who's greater, the honored guest or the busboy? And Jesus says, I've come to be the busboy. I've come to serve. The Son of Man came not to serve, not to, not to be served, but to serve and ransom, pay a ransom for many. Jesus is saying here, I came to serve 
all over again. Even after the resurrection, I'm here to serve. And he's keying in something that would click in their minds, this cooking of the breakfast, because they would go immediately to 1 Kings. And then they would be going, Jesus, angel of the Lord, Jesus. I get it. I get it. He confirms to them. He gives them a new confidence. And based on the testimony of these people, we can have that confidence too. Now, it will always involve a step of faith where we step out and believe and give ourselves to him. But here in this passage, we see just kind of built into it these clues, these little things that tell us more and more about Jesus, about what happened to Peter that happens to us too. A new identity, a new, a new, a new standing. Because we're in a new community just like they were. And we are in We are a new creation, just like they were, and we have a new confidence, just like they do, that you can leave here, you can leave this place with this confidence. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I'm standing firm. I stand on a foundation that cannot be shook in Jesus Christ. That is available to each one of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, that oftentimes, even in passages that seem simple and innocuous, you bring out truths that we can hold on to. Help us, Lord, to be willing, not to sit on the fence, but to really choose and decide that we will be different because of our faith in you, just like Peter was, just like Mary was, just like John and James, just like they all were. And now, Lord, as we look at your word, this this document today that John wrote 2,000 years ago for our for, for us and for our, our help, for our faith, for our salvation. Lord, we trust you and we trust it. Help us to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.